Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. It's back to school pod style. Maybe not for everyone, but there are parents who've chosen so-called pandemic pods as the way to educate their children safely. Today, where we live, we talk to parents in Connecticut who've made this choice. The Washington Post describes pandemic pods as clusters of students who receive professional instruction, privately funded for several hours each day. Not everyone thinks this is a good alternative, and we'll hear from them, too. How will this option deepen educational inequities? At the same time, it's debatable whether communities and elected leaders have done all they can to guarantee a safe return to a classroom in a pandemic. If you're a Connecticut parent who has joined a homeschooling learning pod, learning pod rather because of the coronavirus we want to hear from you here's the number 888-720-9677 that's 888-720-WMPR you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live uh, my first guests are joining by Zoom. LaRue Lewis-McCoy is Associate Professor of the Sociology of Education at New York University. LaRue welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Also here with us is Tia Miller. She's a parent and owner of Youth and Educational Consultant at Creative Vista Charm, LLC. Uh, Tia, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. I wanted to start with you, uh, LaRue. So we've been hearing over the last uh, few months about these pandemic pods. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, what are your th what's your thinking behind this alternative to education this year? Well, I think pandemic pods are getting talked, uh, talked about a lot more now because Many parents are concerned. They're unclear what school will look like in the fall. Some districts are talking about face-to-face, -face, some are hybrid, some are completely online, and parents are often scared, so they're looking for a place of stability. And as they create these pods, right, oftentimes a group of three to five families that come together to do instruction, it on its face could seem like a great thing, right? So parents are taking education into their own hands, but if we're not careful, we'll quickly find that parents who have more resources are going to be creating pods that are very segregated because oftentimes the pods that we have, they're based on the social networks that we already have. And we exist in a very segregated world. Our neighborhoods are segregated, our schools are segregated, our personal networks are segregated. So if you're not careful, the people who are forming pods are gonna form them with people who share their educational background, their racial background. And that's a recipe for really driving the inequality between families and between children wider and wider. Sociologists call this opportunity hoarding. Tell us more about that. Well, opportunity hoarding is the idea that there may be a valuable resource, um, something that we all desire, but there's a wall that's built around that resource and it makes it harder and harder to achieve. So you can imagine a diverse school district or a school district where there are a number of parents who have money who are able to form a pod. They invite in only the families that fit their profile, who come from a similar background, uh, college educated, similar class level. And what happens is they hire a private tutor. So in the midst of this crisis, while everyone's trying to scramble and maybe metaphorically uh, uh, find a life raft, there are some families that are getting speedboats. 
And so they're hiring private tutors and they're hiring private teachers. And they're looking and saying, well, yes, we figured out a way how to do schooling in the pandemic. It's boutique, it's niche, it meets the needs of my student. But what it doesn't do is think about all the other families that are left behind. And there are ways that sometimes schools and districts have not done enough to try to deal with uh, what are the implications of allowing families to decide how education goes when there are a lot of things that we could be doing that produce greater equity. I think these pandemic pods will quickly hoard opportunity for the most affluent among us, the most educated among us, and for families that are working class, families that don't have jobs that provide great flexibility, families that are living check to check and making ends meet, they're going to be pushed further and further down by this moment. There's definitely gaps that have existed pre-pandemic, as you've said, uh, in this last uh, year uh, in Connecticut this spring, you know, one in four children in our state uh, were not uh, participating in online learning. Uh, they weren't and no one knew what they were doing. Uh, maybe they had uh, family uh, parents who are essential workers and they didn't have that support at home. And so we also see these other disparities popping up, LaRue, where you have uh, children who don't have access uh, to computers or even a reliable Wi-Fi, and that can be yeah. a problem as well. And so you mentioned there's other ways uh, that uh, communities can think about addressing these uh, inequity issues. Um, you know, pods again are something that parents have have um, looked at because they're worried about their kids. They've seen a learning loss. They've seen their children uh, feeling isolated, and they want to make sure that's not repeated this year. And so, what are the alternatives, Larue? Well, I think there are a couple different ways. I think for families that are concerned and uh, families who have chosen to pot, right? One of the first things I tell them to do is think about is how is equity playing out in this? Who's included in your pod and who's excluded? Because you may have made a choice by connecting to sets of parents that you already speak to, but that choice can reinforce inequality. So I think there's an importance, and if we're doing equity, you have to reach and stretch a bit. So it may mean incorporating from out, incorporating a family from outside of your traditional network. But that also means that if you incorporate someone from outside of your traditional network, that you make sure they have equal share and decision-making power in a pod. We can imagine uh, a well-intentioned family that has come together and they can all afford to have this private pandemic pod. And they invite in a family that can't afford to do so. But all of a sudden, that family that was invited in, they're coming from a home where uh, adults are essential workers. And in October, when that child comes in with a cough, are the other families going to say, oh, it's probably just a little cold and everything's fine? Or will they literally start to batten down the hatches and push that child out? We see time and time again, if people don't deal with their own biases and really start to understand how equity works at the ground level, they'll revert to their own background of kind of pushing against and pushing away people who are different from them. On another level, I think it's important, as you've talked about, to really make sure that the districts that our children are connected to have worked to reach the most vulnerable families. So back in March and April and May of the spring, when families were not connecting online, oftentimes people said, wow, that's really sad. You know, we hope they'll connect in the fall. But if districts haven't done the work to make sure people have stable Internet connections, make sure that they have appropriate technology to connect. Right. So you can't actually do the online learning via a mobile phone while many families who, who are lower income were trying that option. There has to be a demand where there's a connection between the programming that is offered and reaching the most vulnerable families. And then we've also seen in some places like San Francisco where they said, we may not be able to get every child into a pandemic pod, but we can use community-based resources. So we can use after-school programs and community centers to create safe spaces where children can be safe from the threat of coronavirus, 
where children can also interact with adults and also children have a stable internet connection to move through the schoolwork. So I think there are a number of creative solutions. I think that if you only look out for the benefit of your child, you're missing an opportunity to really create the beloved community and really shift how we do education. You're hearing LaRue Lewis-McCoy, Associate Professor of Sociology of Education at New York University, as we talk about pandemic pods, again, these uh, learning pods that uh, some families in our state and also across our country are thinking about and joining uh, to help their children this year as this pandemic continues. Maybe you're one of them. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring in uh, TMA. Miller, who's also with us here on Zoom again. She's a youth and educational consultant and owner of Creative Vista Charm, LLC. Uh, Tia, welcome again to our show. I wanted you to re respond to some of what uh, LaRue has mentioned, especially from the perspective you have as a parent, but also as a, a, a former educator. Hi. Um, so yeah, I, I was listening to what LaRue said, and I have been... Um, asked by many families about the inequity and inequality with the pandemic pods. And like he said, I have spoken to some families about perhaps adding a child to your pod who's not in your normal circle. And we've also, um, we've also, we've also reached out to um, community organizations to see if they would like to sponsor a pod. So there are a lot of students that did not check in or they were, they were not, um, people could not find them. So what we did was we reached out to a few community organizations for high risk students, students that were un unaccountable, students that were truant to see if some organizations could sponsor a pod for those children. Mm. And what has been the response Tia? from these organizations? Well, we started the pods actually August 1st. So myself as a mom and another friend who's also a mother and a teacher, we had other friends who said that, you know, March was very difficult for them. They needed someone to come in their home and to help them help their children with the um, work. So August 1st, myself and another former friend, Celeste, we decided to start these student pods. So we posted on Facebook just to have a pod for her and I. However, unbeknownst to us, the flyer was shared and shared, and then we had over 100 families reach out to us to start a pod. So after we reached, after we talked to these families, then we realized, you know what, there's other children that need to be placed in the pods. Then a couple weeks ago, maybe a week ago, I reached out to the um, nonprofit organizations. So we're waiting to hear back from them. I will also reach out to them again later next week to see if they'd be interested in sponsoring a pod. Mm. Uh, when you heard from all of these families interested in these pods, what were some of the main reasons why, Tia? Well, most of the moms, they said, the biggest thing is I'm not a teacher. They're, they had trouble with Google Classroom, different apps that the children were using. So most parents weren't able to help their child. So they needed someone to come in to help them. So that's how the whole idea came about. They wanted a teacher or someone who was able to assist their child on activities or skills that they weren't able to assist the child with. Mm. 
and worried about uh, their health as well. When we hear about some schools even thinking about a hybrid version, so maybe not going to school for five days a week or making sure that the capacity is 50% uh, in a school building, it was still worrisome to parents to you? Right. So when we first um, put out the pod, the pod idea, the options were fully distance learning. So the families that were interested, they were they wanted five days a week, fully distance learning, and the teacher to come in five days a week. However, last week, late last week for some districts, they announced the hybrid program. So now with hybrid, that changes a lot of things. For example, in one district, the hybrid is split up A week and a B week. So if your child is in the beginning of the alphabet, you would go the first week, and then the end of the alphabet will go the second week. So now with these pods, if you were trying to form a pod with your child's friends, now it wouldn't be possible because your child's friend may be in the beginning of the week. So now not only is it safety, now it's de- deciding on the schedule for your child, seeing if the pod can work. So there are other issues that are coming up now with the hybrid program. Mm. Again, you're listening to Where We Live as we talk about alternatives to going back to school, to a physical classroom. Um, My guest on Zoom, again, is Tia Miller. She's helping uh, Connecticut families join Pandemic Pods. Uh, She's owner of Creative Vista Charm LLC. On the phone with, uh, rather also on Zoom, is LaRue Lewis-McCoy, who's an associate professor at New York University. Uh, LaRue, you spoke about um, how pods uh, will widen the uh, gaps that we have in this country. Long term, are you worried that even after the pandemic, what does this mean for public school education? Yeah, I think that this moment has some very serious implications for the future. So we know during the summer, there's learning loss. And over a couple of months, everybody loses a little bit. So but we often find students who come from the most vulnerable backgrounds, they can lose between two weeks and two months. We're now talking about having schooling at a distance and a gap of schooling for more than six, maybe eight, up to 12 months. What that'll mean in the long term is that the families that are able to gather the resources for their individual child, they'll be able to wade in the water. They'll be able to make it uh, make it along. But families coming from disadvantaged backgrounds are in a really hard place. I think there is a very large danger in this moment, too, because parents are seeing the idea that they can individually educate their child. And one of the reasons that schools are struggling so much is that the federal government has not invested the dollars necessary to open schools safely. So this is really pushing away the idea of quality, safe public schools and trying to amplify the idea of private education. In states like South Carolina, you even see them passing legislation that says, if you don't get face-to-face instruction, um, you can pull your dollars out of the school so that you can take a child to a private school. So I think there is a very large danger that the children who are coming from the most disadvantaged families will become uh, uh, further left behind and that public education itself will be eroded away more and more. Mm. Those are important points that you raised, LaRue. Uh, Tia, I had mentioned that you're a former educator. You used to teach, I believe, in the Hartford Public Schools. So when we think about how there are not enough resources, especially in a pandemic, uh, to help these local schools, uh, I want you to talk a little bit from your personal perspective, how you saw that uh, at your school. Um, yeah, so I worked for Hartford Public Schools and I also worked um, for CREC. So I did see this on a day-to-day basis. Um, I also taught kindergarten, um, third and fourth grade. So 
So many of the students did not have all the resources they need. So as an educator, I would have to bring in things that the students needed. Also families, a lot of the families would work so they wouldn't be able to come into different meetings, PPTs, things like that. However, um, right before, maybe a year ago, I worked with a school where I was the family and community liaison and families were not able to attend PPT, special ed children families. So we actually started using Zoom almost a year ago and we would have the families um, use the Zoom to call in and, and participate in the PPTs. So as an educator, we always have to go above and beyond. So we always put our, our students first. So I do see a lot of disparities in the public school system in the inner city. Mm. Uh, if you were still teaching, Tia, how would you feel about going back into a classroom this fall? Oh, no, I would, I would not want to go back into the classroom. So, so, so a lot of people know that the students will go half time. So let's say that the mm. students will go Monday, Tuesday, and then the other half of your students will go Thursday, Friday. As an educator, you're exposed to all the students, especially mm -hmm. middle school and high school educators. They're exposed to hundreds of students because if you are, let's say, a language arts middle school teacher, you have maybe four or five different sessions of that block. So as an educator, I would not want to go back into the schools. I think we need to wait maybe until January 2020 and see how what happens, what plays out with the pandemic. But most of my friends are educators that are also moms. They do not want to go back to the school. Also exposing their own children. And the other issue is if teachers are required to go um, all five days a week, what do they do with their own children? That's another issue coming up. You're hearing Tia Miller again. She's a youth and educational consultant here in Connecticut. She owns Creative Vista Charm LLC. She's been helping families uh, join pandemic learning pods as an alternative to sending their child back to school or to keep them fully remote at home where the parent is responsible uh, for that instruction. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank LaRue Lewis-McCoy, who's associate professor at New York University, Sociology of Education. LaRue, thank you for your perspective. My pleasure. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to continue to talk about these learning pods. Have you joined one of them? Tell us more about your decision. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about pandemic or learning pods. They're an option some families have considered because they don't feel it's safe to send their kids back to school in this pandemic, and they need help if their children have to learn remotely fully remotely. Now, are you a Connecticut parent who never thought about homeschooling until now? Have you joined one of these learning pods? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest today on Zoom is Tia Miller. She's a youth and educational consultant and owner of Creative Vista Charm LLC. She's a local mother, uh, also a former educator who's helping families with these 
join these pandemic pods. Atia, tell us a little bit more about the structure and how much does it cost a family to join these pods? Yeah, that's the big question I get when families call. They say, what's the cost? So um, how it works is families form a pod. So the pods can be three to six children in a pod. They can be various ages, kindergarten to eighth grade. Once your pod is formed, then you choose a pod leader and a pod host. So the pod host is usually the family whose home the children will go to. So you can choose a morning session or an afternoon session. The morning sessions are three hours. You can do 9 to 12, 8.30 to 11.30, or the afternoon session, 1.30 to 4.30. Once the pods are formed, then we find the right teacher. So the right teacher would be someone who lives close by as long as they live about 45 minutes or less away. And then we also look at the teacher's background. If the students are early ages, like kindergarten, first or second, someone with that experience. So the cost, I've been doing lots of research. These pandemic pods just started, most of the articles I've read started back maybe July 15th, July 20th, around there. And the pods are quite expensive compared to pods. For example, New York City has pods starting at 13000 per month per child. Then I saw a pod in San Francisco that was 2500 a month per pod per child. So our pods, we do it by pod, not by child. So mm. for example, one week is 1050 for the pod and then families break up the price. So depending on how much they can pay, they would break up the price. So it ends up being 210 a day per pod, not per child. So they can do three days, four days, or five days a week. And again, it's for families that have the resources uh, to do this. Uh, I'm just curious, when you talked earlier about reaching out to community organizations, thinking about how these pods can also help uh, children in uh, lower income communities, uh, children that are already experiencing um, this widening gap, you know, I'm just curious how this can really be feasible for these organizations. And would they just be grouping children from the neighborhood versus thinking about ways to, to make these pods more diverse to you? So um, we haven't really thought about that as far as grouping students from different neighborhoods or different districts. However, there are a group of students or there are students that were, um, like you said earlier, did not log in. As educators, we couldn't find these students. They were unaccountable. We couldn't find, you know, they they never logged in. So it would be bringing those students together, the high-risk students that you know aren't logging in, who aren't connected. So bringing maybe three to six of those students together, having them meet at the community organization location, and then the teacher would work with them, provide a lunch, and then the students could go back home. Mm. And then when we think about who is providing the professional instruction, I know there are uh, tutoring companies uh, this has been a real boon to, but you know, one of the critiques, Tia, is that these pandemic pods are pulling teachers away from, from the public school systems. 
Um, I don't feel they're pulling teachers away because the teachers that we've gathered so far, we have about five or six, they've already left the system or they're retired. Some, For example, one lady we're working with, she's an educator. She was an educator for many years. However, now she has small children. So she has left the public school system when she had her children. So I don't think we're pulling them away. I think there are there are teachers out there that are not teaching. They've either retired, they left the system, or they're moms that are home with their own small children. You can join our conversation, especially if you are a parent that has chosen a pandemic pod for your child, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Elena's calling in. Uh, she is a local parent that has chosen this pod option. Elena, welcome to our show. Oh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you very much for letting me join. Um, I I listened to the show from the beginning, so it's informative. Um, I... I hear everything that is being said about inequity and inequality, but I, um, I take an issue with uh, that being placed on parents who are forming pods rather than our government structure and our school organizations. Um, as parents, we're sort of left to figuring out what, what's best for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a... Uh, eight, I have three children, but two school-age children uh, in third grade, going into third grade and sixth grade in West Hartford. To be clear, I'm not, uh, I'm not forming a homeschooling pod. We're not pulling children, our kids, out of public school system, and we're also not creating our own curriculum. Uh, we are following a public school district. My children will be in school one week, out of school the other week, and. Um, I'm also a physician, and I'm actually of the opinion that we should, in Connecticut with our numbers, should be going full-time. So if you want to address inequity, this, this would, would have addressed inequity, in my opinion, but I understand um, may not be a popular opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, as far as um, what made me decide to organize a pod uh, for my children, um, it's it's multifold. Uh, firstly, what happened in the spring cannot happen again. Um, I'm uh, uh... Elena. Are you there? Oh, it looks like we lost Elena. Um, so I, while we wait to get her back, I wanted to ask you, Atia, Elena made an port, important clarification on these pods. And so uh, there are choices where uh, a group of parents could withdraw their children from these public schools and follow a homeschooling curriculum with a tutor or a, uh, a teacher. But then there's also other parents like Elena, who, again, uh, she is going to have have her kids follow a curriculum, but at least still have professional someone who is a professional help these children. Exactly, um, our pods they are we are distance monitoring programs, so we will not be doing um, homeschooling. So we will use the public school curriculum. It's our pods, just like Elena said. So we're, the students would still log on, and we would still follow the public school. Uh, curriculum. So, for example, if a child is working on two-digit math 
and they're in second grade, we would work on that for the week. So we're not bringing in a curriculum. We're not a homeschooling program. We're definitely monitoring the students with their public school curriculum. Mm. Again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we were hearing from uh, Mother Elena. We hope that she can give us a call back. Again, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, something that both LaRue, our previous guest, uh, mentioned, and also Elena is, uh, you know, if the the government had done a better job job providing support uh, to states and local communities and school districts to figure out, you know, what is the best way uh, to educate children? Because we know we're in a pandemic. We need to be careful. Uh, we have to um, practice social distancing and, and uh, you know, use masks. But at the same time, children need uh, to be supported and they need that socialization, uh, Tia. And that's important to stress as well, that parents have a lot on their plates and, and they want the best for their kids. I agree. Um, and the thing is, every district is different. Um, I can think of one in particular now that's on my mind where my, my son, for example, he, he would log in every day. So he would see a live teacher from 9 to 10, and then he'd get a break, and then he'd see another live teacher from 11 to 12, then they'd have a break. So he was online all day from 9 to or 9 to 3.30, and he was able to talk to the teacher, talk to his classmates. The teacher was able to break students up into breakout groups on Zoom. So our districts did not do that. There were children, students that I work with, teenagers, that said to me, you know, I didn't get a computer until June, or my teacher would assign some work, and then I wouldn't see her. I couldn't get her. So I think if we were the same across the board, like children were able to log in, see their teacher, ask for help, but that's not the case in every district. Mm. I think Elena's back with us. Elena, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. So, sorry, but we lost you. <laughs> but I, I wanted to hear you were just saying before we lost you that you didn't want to see a repeat of what it was like in the spring. Tell us what it was like for your children, because you have a job where you have to go to work. Correct. I was at work. I'm very we're very fortunate that my husband works from home, not related to pandemic. Uh, he works from home, but he was not able to essentially work while managing two school children's uh, curriculum. And we have a three-year-old whose school was also closed during that time. Um, so, uh, and we did not hire a babysitter because we did not have anybody from outside of our home at that time. Um, the, my children both love school and uh, are fairly motivated. I can't imagine what it's like for parents who uh, have children with learning disabilities or any other disabilities. So despite my children being motivated and um, studious, it was extremely difficult to motivate them. Essentially, West Hartford Public School, and I'm not blaming them. This is uh, unfortunate. This, nobody was prepared for this. Mm. But essentially, dumped the curriculum on us, and it was completely up to the parents. And it was very teacher-dependent. My fifth grader had an amazing teacher. Granted, did not have little children at home uh, and was able to give feedback and monitor my son's um, progress and uh, assignments versus my, at the time, second graders teacher had small children at home and essentially was a 30 minute a week uh, check-in. 
so, and he's the one who needed more instruction. So even back then, we hired somebody virtually to meet with him because we could not, um, I'm not a teacher and neither is my husband. So it's one thing to know the subject matter. It's another thing to know how to teach. And, uh, and what I saw that my children lost interest and they did, were not getting any kind of feedback. They both were saying how much they miss school. And I don't want to see that happening again. Um, while the school is seemingly somewhat better prepared, um, I, I, I don't think their capabilities of giving the same differentiated learning and the same attention uh, that um, our schools have come a long way to be able to achieve prior to this. Uh, so my idea of forming pods was sort of um, twofold. One is social emotional well-being for my kids. We happen to have, we didn't look for a pod, we happen to have, yes, like-minded parents uh, who also have children exactly the same age, luckily in the same part of the alphabet, because apparently, you know, that's how you have to pick friends these days, um, it, that, hap that happened to work out that way. So we were on the same page looking for a teacher not to recreate the curriculum, but to help us mm -hmm. guide, to give instructions to our third graders and to motivate and monitor our sixth graders. Um, and frankly, as far as the cost goes, this is no, we would need childcare. <laughs> forget, forget, like I'm not, I'm not equating teacher to childcare, but if we were just looking for childcare, it would be more expensive than what we are right now organizing as two families for a tutor. Mm -hmm. So um, let, let's not forget that I can't leave a third grader alone at home. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so that's, that's that's one thing. The 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 second the, so the first is social emotional and then also academic. Our schools have come a long way from changing from the didactic form of um, education, the way you and I probably have gone through school, and everything is done through teamwork, collaboration, small groups, and essentially all of that is going to go by the wayside. I can't mm -hmm. replace it in a pod of four children. But nothing is optimal, but at least we can try a better situation than a one-on-one -on -one mm. tutoring or one-on-one -on -one teachers, mm. like one-on-one -on -one teaching. Yeah, Elena, so, I wanted to bring in a... Thank you for sure. explaining that to us, and we're so glad that you're able to call back. Uh, again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Diana's calling in from Granby. She has a, a question about how these pandemic pods, uh, um, again, uh, will go through each day, especially when we're talking about the virus is still around. Diana, go ahead. Uh, good morning, Lucy and Tia. Lucy, I love your show. <laughs> well, thank um, you. <laughs> I have a good team. I, I am excited to learn about this, um, the creative use of charm and this pod learning. I myself am not um, doing the pod learning with my own um, children, but I'm trying to be a resource for other parents in my community. Um, that are struggling, like all of us are, um, to try and figure out the best fit for their student and their, you know, feeling safe um, and everything else. So um, I think that this is an amazing resource, very innovative. And my question is, what 
as all the schools have planned immense, immense, um, lots of planning and thought has been put into the reopening of all the schools and protocols and policies for safety and public health. What is Creative Vista doing in these pod formations, perhaps if a student was to test positive for coronavirus? Do you Excellent have a question? Uh, Tia, go ahead. Yeah, I have. Um, so myself and um, my partner, Celeste, another mom who's a teacher, we did a webinar um, August 6th and we came up with 25 questions. We try to think of all the questions possible that families would have. So as far as um, safety, that one of the things we're going to do is when the child arrives and the teacher's there, the first thing the child has to do is get his or her temperature checked with handheld um, forehead thermometer. Then the child washes her, his or her hands. Then the learning will begin. So we also asked each pod would have to sign an agreement. We asked the families, especially if you are going to be in a pod to not travel. So no one in the home, the homeowners, no, no siblings, et cetera, to travel. Um, we also make sure that families agree to these things in the um, plan that we have. If a child does um, get corona or someone in the family in the pod home gets corona, then we will stop the face-to-face -face, um, learning. However, the teacher will be available for the entire three hours of that session via Zoom or via phone. And then after the 14 days, then the families can come back together. We do ask that the families um, tested and then we would all come back together. So we have thought of all, all the different scenarios that can happen. Um, like I said, in the webinar, we covered about 25 questions of safety and how the pod works, et cetera. Hmm. Again, you're hearing Tia Miller. She's a youth and educational consultant at Creative Vista Charm LLC as we talk about these pandemic learning pods or homeschooling pods that uh, some families in our state and across the country um, have considered uh, this year. You can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, thanks again to uh, parent Elena for calling in. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear more about homeschooling as a longtime option for parents uh, in the pandemic, a lot more people considering it. But what should parents keep in mind uh, if they're keeping their child at home this year? We'll talk more about that after the break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we check in with New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer for the latest on the race to develop a safe and effective COVID vaccine. We'll also talk about navigating the confusing world of healthcare in a pandemic. We hope you join us. Now, today we've been talking about the options families are weighing as some schools in Connecticut reopen their doors this fall. Some parents who don't feel safe sending their children back and need help getting their kids to do remote learning have joined these pandemic, these so-called pandemic pods or learning pods. Uh, other families have joined homeschooling pods where they have completely withdrawn their children from school and follow a homeschooling curriculum. Um, my guest on Zoom is Tia Miller. She's been helping families join pandemic 
pods. But my next guest is also wants to caution that homeschooling raises other concerns beyond equity issues. On the phone with us now is Elizabeth Bartholet. She's a Morris Wasserstein professor of law and faculty director of the Child Advocacy Program at Harvard Law. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. Uh, we know that this moment that we're in is one that nobody wants to be in, right? So many families uh, who who love sending their kids to public school are now thinking about homeschooling because of the fact that we're in a pandemic. But from um, your uh, research and, and from your work, what are some of the concerns you have when we think about homeschooling in general? So I think it's important to distinguish, as some of your guests have uh, mm-hmm. already, between homeschooling and home education. So Homeschooling, Mm -hmm. as we've thought of it in pre-COVID times, involves parents who've decided to withdraw their children from public school and want to educate their children separately from that, apart from the public school curriculum requirements, etc. Home education uh, in post-COVID times, I think of as something that, you know, parents are not choosing. They've been forced into it. And I think... um, for all that I have a lot of criticisms of the unregulated state of homeschooling, I think, um, and their real risks for kids being kept at home, um, I also think it's, it's uh, a life and death situation with COVID, and I'm very sympathetic to public authorities making the decision to not open schools in areas where there's any community spread and also sympathetic to parents that even if schools are opened who recognize the risk to their children from COVID and want to keep them at home. So I I think that uh, in these times, it's very important that lots of kids be at home at the same time. I think it's important to recognize the risks to children and Mm -hmm. to think what parents can do um, and also what schools can do to address those risks. Mm. Let's talk about those risks, uh, Elizabeth, uh, because as you mentioned, it's important to clarify uh, these learning pods uh, versus uh, homeschooling in general. Uh, Every state has different uh, laws when it comes to homeschooling. But when children are kept home, uh, whether with it's their parent or the fact that they might have a professional instructor, schools, when you send your children to school, teachers and staff are mandated reporters. So if there's issues of abuse or neglect, um, if they see signs, there's steps to be taken uh, to protect children. But when they're home, they're they're kind of off the radar. And so I'm wondering if you could talk more about in this moment, you know, how school districts and families can make sure that children are still safe. Uh, enormously important. So we do have evidence um, from homeschooling prior to COVID times that there's a significant risk to children for abuse and neglect in a subset of these homeschooled families. And, uh, you know, some of the best evidence actually comes from a Connecticut study where in Connecticut, um, the Office of Child Advocates did a study of all the children withdrawn for supposed homeschooling from a number of districts during a number of years. So every single child withdrawn. And they found that a third of those children were uh, withdrawn into families where the parents had been reported for abuse and neglect, and a fourth of the children uh, were withdrawn into families where there had been repeated reports of abuse and neglect in the family. So that's just one indicator of 
the danger for children among um, a significant subset of the the classic traditional pre-COVID homeschooling families. Another indicator was a study that child pediatricians did of torture cases in which they looked at some of the most serious abuse cases involving really horrific torture of children and found out of their sample, which was a relatively small sample, but still out of that sample, some three quarters of the children were um, in a, that were school age children were in a quote homeschooling close quote situation. Mm -hmm. And I say quote because uh, very likely these kids weren't being educated at all, and mm -hmm. if they were, um, it, 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 they were nonetheless being um, tortured. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, there, there are real uh, risks for children, and as you say, a major piece of the risk in homeschooling, and this is also a risk, of course, in the home education that's going on in COVID times, mm -hmm. is that if children are kept at home, they are not being seen by anybody other than their parents. And one of the greatest protections for children is the mandated reporter system. And teachers are the largest groups of mandated reporters to Child Protective Services. So teachers and other mandated reporters are required to report to child protection agencies any case of suspected abuse and neglect. And that gives the Child Protective service agencies the opportunity mm -hmm. to investigate, find out what happened, and if this suspected abuse is real abuse. And that protection was one of the, you know, the big steps in our country's creation of a child protection system. That protection vanishes mm -hmm. when kids are kept at home. So one of the great things about the learning pods um, that's, that's the, the primary subject of your show here is that these kids are being seen by others. <laughs> They're they have the opportunity to mix with peers and to be seen by adults other than their parents. And that's a huge protection for children. Um, Elizabeth, and can I ask, uh, Elizabeth, before we run out of time, uh, for the districts that have gone fully remote again for the fall because mm -hmm. we're in a pandemic, right. can you tell us quickly what are some tools, uh, maybe using technology tools, to help monitor uh, children and make sure that abuse and neglect isn't happening? Yeah, well, some teachers, and I think this should be all teachers throughout the country should be educated to this. Some of them are using the remote learning uh, to provide children with an easy way to flag that they're in trouble mm -hmm. and an easy way to flag it that is not going to draw the attention of an abusive parent. So there can be something on the computer screen that kids could could touch, uh, you know, and with their mouth, and um, that would mean that teachers would be alerted to the fact that there could be problems there, and they could then, you know, report to CPS, Child Protective Services, and CPS could look into it. Um, other districts, and I think it's wonderful, some of them are doing more affirmative outreach where uh, the schools are setting up some system to occasionally visit families and, uh, you know, for educational purposes, but while you're there to check out what's going on educationally, you can see, and there again, mandated reporters, obvious abuse and neglect. So I think that's enormously important. I mm -hmm. think also schools should just be on the alert that, that kids who are, you know, to be reaching out to CPS and Child Protection Services should be on the alert that any of the children that are in their 
that they're monitoring because of prior abuse reports, they should be making special efforts to visit in person those families more often than they would in normal times, recognizing that those kids are particularly at risk now. I also think um, there's been talk about hybrid systems where schools might allow, encourage in-person learning for a very small number of their children, the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the only mention I've heard in terms of those vulnerable groups are kids, very young kids and also kids with disabilities. But I think we need to add the category of children who have been previously reported to Child Protective Services. I think those children, if there's any limited in-person opportunity for schooling, those children should be required, not just allowed, but required to go to school because Mm -hmm. they're a a super vulnerable group and their only protection really is going to be being seen by teachers. Well, I want to thank Elizabeth Bartholet, again, the Morris Wasserstein Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Child Advocacy Program at Harvard Law for giving us um, some more to think about in this conversation as we think about uh, children uh, at home and the importance of socialization, but also keeping them safe. Uh, Tia Miller, who's been with us uh, for the hour, I wanted to give you uh, some final thoughts on, uh, again, families trying to make the best decisions uh, for their children, uh, pandemic pods, uh, it, it seems like there is a lot of interest that you're that you're noting. Yes, um, so I just like to say we're here to help families form these pods. Again, a lot of families do not want what happened in March to happen again. Mm-hmm. So we're just here to help families assist them with the online learning. If you're interested in starting a pod, feel free to call us or to email or text, and we'll help you start that pod. Also, our pods are for half the school year. So if you want to just sign up for September, December, we are, we're able to do that. And we're here to help families and assist with online learning. And, for the And thank you, Tia Miller. We'll have a link uh, to your company again, Creative Vista Charm LLC. Thanks for listening. Today's show produced by Test Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.